don't know about you, but at our house, we at any given moment have like one to 200 ongoing DIY projects um, or projects that like we think are DIY, but we know in about five years we're gonna find out they really aren't and we just finally cave and hire a professional to do the things that we need to do. We're at the stage in life now with the toddler where we're hiring people to do things that like we would do ourselves because we're stubborn and I'm cheap, right? So like we're hiring next week a painter to paint a bathroom. And I'm like, I can, it just irks me that like, I just don't have the time to do this easy thing. And so, you know, you look at the quotes and you're like, ah, it just takes forever. But when we bought our house, it was 2018 and we didn't have kids and we were, you know, dinks, dual income, no kids uh, in the magical world that that is. And so we bit off way more than we could chew and our house does not look in any way like the day that we bought our house because we just went to town and we were doing all these things and we were doing so well and we painted everything that we could, you know, at the time. And it's now at a point where life is just busy, right? My, my wife runs a nonprofit up in Cleveland and I'm pastoring here and we have a kid and in about a month we're going to have another and things are just nuts. And so we, we've encountered resistance in the last few years, so to speak. And so if you were to walk into my house right now, especially if you were to be privileged enough to be permitted into the abyss of the upstairs, you would find, you know, bare wood cabinets that should be painted and haven't been and probably won't be until our kids are in college, if we're honest with ourselves. Right? You know you have that thing you think you're going to do next week. And, like, you will die with that being incomplete. Like, you just will. Right? You start strong. We had these grand visions. You know, the first year we're going to have these bathrooms redone. And then we're going to have this. And I'm going to learn to tile so that I don't have to pay someone to tile. I'm going to do it myself. <clears throat> and we started strong and then just over the years just petered out. To the point where now, like, I don't think I would buy another house that wasn't fully moving ready. I just can't do it anymore. I'm done. The resistance has come. The project that was supposed to be easy, and here's what kills the most times. You think something's going to take, like, two days, right? And then you tear it out. And then you notice that behind it there's something else. And now it's five days. And then it's three weeks. And then it's, like, beyond the scope of your skill, even if you had infinite time. Resistance came, and so we now just aren't really DIYers anymore. We miss that, but we're not. I think sometimes in life we function in the same way. There's a lot of ways in which we tell ourselves we're going to be a certain way. We're going to improve this. We're going to, you know, go to that gym like we talked about last week. And we start strong, but then, like, resistance comes, right? You, you put your mind to a task, and you check off some boxes, and you feel very accomplished, and you're doing what you're supposed to do, and you have that momentum behind you then that first bit of resistance comes. Maybe you're in sales and you start out and you're in a new company and you're getting all these calls and it's working out. And then there's just no one that bites for like two months and you just get discouraged. We, we live that way. And unfortunately, sometimes our faith life can become that way too. Right? How many of you, don't raise your hand, this is a rhetorical question. I'm not putting you on the spot or embarrassing you. How many of you read the Read Your Bible Plan this year religiously for like the first three days and now you're like two days behind, and you're like, I don't know if I'm going to catch up. I went to see the grandkids this weekend, so I didn't. And then all of a sudden, now I'm like half a Genesis behind. Now I'm just overwhelmed. Right? Maybe you're already there. Hopefully not. It's the second week. It's a long year if that's where you are now. But hopefully that's not where you are. But we do. We do have that. We peter out when it comes to faith things. This is the year that we're going to serve more and get engaged in our church more. And so we join a committee of some kind, and then what happens is, oh, my kid started sports. And I just don't have the time. 
Today we're going to start looking at the book of Judges. And Judges, is it starts in this kind of exact way. If you've ever felt like you've started strong and then petered out, welcome to the book of Judges where there's an entire Israelite people that collectively are suffering the same fate as you are. Uh, only they do it with gusto, and they do it epically worse, and theirs involves like murder and all kinds of other things. So you're doing pretty good. Right? <laughs> We're going to look at the book of Judges for about the next six weeks or so. And over those six weeks, we're going we're gonna to today just do an overview of what this book is all about. Because I think it's a book that is in some ways misunderstood. Or at the very least, it's a book that very few people like to spend time in. Why? The book of Judges is remarkably depressing. I should have probably not done this in January <laughs> in, in Northeast Ohio. I was thinking about that this morning as I was setting things up and, and getting everything turned on. I'm like, this is like, a, this is like a hard August sermon series. But here we are, I believe in you, and I promise you that at the end of this book, by the time we finish, there is hope. So do not lose hope and do not lose heart, but we got to get through a whole lot of muck and mire before we get there, okay? So stay with me. The book of Judges starts at the end of kind of Joshua's, I don't want to say reign, but his time in charge of the Israelites, right? There's three really kind of things that we're going to look at today. The cultural context that sets the stage for the book of Judges. The structure of the book itself, like what we encounter and how we encounter it. And then some theology of what can we learn as a people from like the book as a whole before we dive into the weeds. What are some of the big overarching theological messages that apply to our day and our time today? And so first in a cultural context world, Joshua had led the people into the promised land. If you remember, God created himself a people, Israel. Right? They were taken over. The Egyptians had them enslaved. They were miraculously delivered under Moses. And after Moses, Joshua takes over, and they are wandering through the desert for their years and years and years. And finally, the Lord gives them the land that he had been promising them forever. So now they are a people, and they have a land and they start to conquer the armies in that land, and they do remarkably well at first. Right? They're just taking people over. Every time they have a battle, they have victory. Right? Then Joshua dies. And the book of Judges starts right at this point where Joshua dies. The book of Judges takes place in about a span of just under 300 years. Um, there's some debate about the actual time frame because we have some challenges dating like exact things, like when exactly was the Exodus, when exactly, you know, did Moses die? Like some of those, some of those dates are slightly debatable. So we're going to say about 295 to 300 years for the entire book of Judges. And it starts around 1300 or so BC, mid-1300s BC, just to give you kind of a reference point for where we are, right? So Joshua dies, and this is the very beginning of the book of Judges. After the death of Joshua... The people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. And so Simeon went with him, and then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites and their into their hands, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. 
Great start. They're doing wonderful, right? And by the way, we'll get to this in a second, but when it talks about Judah and Simeon, it addresses them in kind of an individual way. It says him and his. But we're talking about the tribes of Israel, right? And so when he says Judah went up against them, it's the tribe of Judah or the tribe of Simeon or later the tribe of Benjamin, right? There were 12 tribes of Israel, and we'll dig into that tribal piece in just a second. But they're going up against the Canaanites. They're winning. They're doing wonderful, wonderful stuff. They're just annihilating them the way God commanded them to. It's this beautiful display of, of God-ordained warfare, and they are taking over their land, and they're settling in, right? And Joshua dies, and they say, what's next? And the Lord says, Judah is going to go up next. And they're okay. And they go, and they win. And they're doing great until we get to verse 19. Here's verse 19 and on. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites, who lived in Jerusalem. And so the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. At this point, this point, it's worth mentioning that the names given here are representative of those tribes. And there are 12 tribes of Israel. And they are Reuben, Simeon, Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Ephraim, and Manasseh. Don't remember that. Or do remember that. Maybe that's something that you're really excited about. But those are the 12 tribes. So when you hear any of those names throughout, and names come up a bunch in the book of Judges, those are the 12 tribes of Israel. Those are not enemy territories. Those are the Israelite people. And we have to understand something about not just Judges, but the entire kind of time of the Old Testament when God puts his people together. When we read scripture and we hear the phrase, the Israelites did something or said something, or here's God and his people... I think we think of it like some big giant campout or like music festival, right? Like here's all the Israelite people always together in their, in their big pile and the Lord talks to like all of them or Moses talks to all of them or Joshua talks to all of them, right? And when the judges come around, like they're like the judges are like the leader of all these people. The people of Israel were tribal in nature, like when we say 12 tribes, we mean 12 distinct people groups within the people Israel. And once they settled in the land, they function in a lot of ways kind of autonomously on their own. Right? And so when we start to get into the weeds of Judges and we read that, you know, there was a conflict and the Lord had to raise a judge named Ehud. It's not every single time that there's a judge raised that it affects all of the people of Israel. Right? They each settled in all their different areas. And so if a northern kind of territory was invading Israel, there might be two or three out of the 12 tribes that are having to deal with that. Right? And there's times when they call for aid and a couple others join in. But like, there are conflicts in the north that southern tribes don't even hear about until it's long done and over with. They had full autonomy with how they function. They kind of governed themselves in a way. They all had kind of elders amongst them. Right? Each of them was named after, obviously, a person. Right? And so there was, this, there was this functional, like, sort of quasi-government in the midst of the people. But they didn't have one cohesive way of always gathering together. Right? They would come together and be in the temple for, like, a festival. But then they would come apart. It's kind of like your extended family at Christmas. Right? 
Some of you don't hear about them for like a whole year, and then they all show up at your door on the 23rd, and you have to feed and house them. And you're like, who are these people? I don't even know. Like, they, they added more of them, and I didn't know that happened. Right? I thought there were seven coming, and there's 13. That's how it kind of functioned. And so I think we need to, just, when we read scripture, it's important that we understand that. A lot of times, it's not just this, like, people that are like, we're all moving together now, and the Lord tells us this, right? The Lord speaks in different tribes at different points and raises different deliverers and has different conflicts. And some of them are more idolatrous than others. Some of them go off the deep end first, right? It's a mess. And so every time there is a conflict, like, there's no Israelite army, like, oh, there's a territory invading. All right, call the army. Like, if someone invaded the U.S., we have the army. They would come together, they would be deployed, and they would clean house. Right? Every time the Israelites faced conflict in the Old Testament, they had to, from scratch, assemble a people. And these judges that we'll encounter, one of the reasons that they become powerful is because a lot of them have the charisma and ability to go through the various tribes and summon people to fight. They're a leader that someone wants to follow, at least in terms of combat and fighting, right? They have some kind of wit about them, some kind of special skill that makes them suitable to be the deliverer of that particular occasion against that particular enemy, right? And so here they encounter the first roadblock as Judah tries to fight, and it says that they couldn't drive out the Jebusites. And so instead of driving them out, it says they lived among them even to this day, meaning when the book of Judges was written. Right? And here's the conflict. We encounter this roadblock, and, and a key verse to understanding why this matters is actually in the book of Deuteronomy, and it reads this. This is Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 4. This is before they ever had the land. They're being promised the land, and they're being told this. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Gigashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Pezzites, or the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them, and you shall no, show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, you should not give your daughters to their sons or take daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. This is one of those things in the Old Testament that's very hard, but the Lord commands God's people when he gives them the land he's promised them to completely and utterly annihilate everyone in their path. Right? They're supposed to go into this land, this Canaan land, and any tribe or any army or any people group they encounter, they are to completely wipe them off the face of the earth. Everyone. And they're not supposed to even take for themselves a plunder of their stuff. They're just supposed to, like, torch it all. If there's a statue to their god, burn it down, get rid of it. They're supposed to completely just, just graze the field of this land and start new. Because the Lord's goal is that he uses the Israelites to establish for himself a holy people. Right? This is after the Noah and the flood. Right? They're starting fresh, and the Lord is deciding to start with these people. And so he just gets rid of everyone else. Now, does that mean that we should go out into the culture and do that? No, <laughs> because the Lord doesn't call us today to do that. This was a one-time thing. But the point is this. They do not listen. 
Once they get into the land and things start to get difficult, they begin to slowly, with little things and then larger things, compromise. They're like, well, we don't have to drive them out. We obviously defeated these guys. Right? Can't we just let them live here? Like, we're the victors. They're going to respect us. Right? We'll just let them be over here. They know who's boss. They've seen our God decimate them. They know who the winner is going to be if they ever try to rise up against us again. Let's just let them be. And then over time, it turns into let's spend time with them. And then it becomes let's intermarry with them. Right? And so slowly, little by little, what happens is there's a compromise that takes place. And that's the key to the whole of the book of Judges is that they do not listen to exactly what the Lord calls them to do. They do it a little bit, but they let the culture just keep their influence. And over time, gradually, that influence is what takes root in the heart of the Israelite people. And so the book of Judges is the story of the complete eventual failure of all of Israel, like the entire 100% failure. And so this book, in and of itself, outside of the rest of scripture, has really no silver lining. Right? It starts with the people doing well, taking over territory, and it actually ends with a civil war amongst the Israelites themselves. And it ends with stories of murder and bloodshed and sexual abuse and all kinds of devastating things. There is a level of evil that befalls the Israelite people. So that by the time we read the last few verses of Judges, the people of God actually don't look any different than the people they came to conquer and replace. They just look like them. They don't resemble God or his character or his nature at all. It doesn't happen quickly, but it happens slowly. And so how does the book of Judges structure itself? Chapter 2 gives us an idea. It says this, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals other gods. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the balls and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. And whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. And the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. And yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. And he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. This is what we call in the book of Judges, the judges cycle. And here's the whole essence of the book. There are six main judges that we see throughout the book of Judges. And each one of them repeats this exact same cycle. So for the next six weeks or five weeks, we're going to look at some of them two in one week and all those kinds of things. But we're going to see the same cycle repeat over and over again, right? The first thing that happens is Israel falls into sin and worships their God, another God. And so God allows them to be oppressed and Israel repents and cries out. 
Every single time. They do what they want. God gives them over to somebody. They cry out to their God that they just had forsaken. And the Lord has pity on them. He raises this judge to deliver Israel. Israel is delivered. And under that judge, so long as he lives, they have some semblance of returning to normalcy or to worship of their own God. But as soon as the judge dies, they just start the cycle all over again. And when we look at this, it's not really just a cycle in terms of a circle, but it's really a, cy a cycle that's kind of a downward spiral. Every single time we progress through the book, it gets worse. Each judge themselves is worse than the one before it. All right? And so that's the other thing to keep in mind in this. When we read this book, one of the things that people have been tempted to do is they've been tempted to look at the judges as heroes. The six judges that we are going to encounter are wicked, self-centered, awful human beings. The Lord uses them despite who they are, not because of who they are. And some of them start strong, but in the end, they all tank and fail. Every one of them has something really significant about them that makes them terrible people. And so what God is doing in the midst of the book of Judges is literally trying to make lemonade out of lemons. There aren't these wonderful people that he's raising up. He's doing the best he can with the hand that he's been dealt in these Israelites that do not follow God. And each cycle gets progressively worse. Right? And so then here's the structure. Chapter 1 is a recount up to where we are. Right? It gives us the Joshua died, they're conquering, all that stuff. Chapter 2 is the cliff notes of the whole book. So when you're reading this, chapter 2 tells you the whole thing in kind of an overview of the cycle of what happens each time. Chapters 3 through 16 are the whole stories of all the six judges. And then from 17 till the end of the book in chapter 21, it talks about kind of the demise of God's people as a whole. Right? By the time we get to 17 and the last judge has come and gone, there's really two stories that are told in those last few chapters that just amplify how awful Israel has gotten. And the last story ends in complete civil war. And by the time we get to the end of the book of Judges, there's just no hope. So go home today and feel good about yourself. Because <laughs> there's no hope. It's like, have anyone, has anyone seen those like old vintage 21 Jesus videos? They overdub Jesus' voice like it, for him to say things that Jesus would never say. And he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount, and he's like, you know, I've performed many miracles, so I can tell you this. There is no hope. That is all. Goodbye. <laughs> and then the video just ends, and you're like, I promise you, we will get to the hopeful part at the end of this. But for now, we're going to be stuck in this for a while. And I think it's important that we become stuck in this for a while. Because the book of Judges is scripture. It is put there by God through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for us to consume and to understand and to engage with and interact with and to learn from. And I think the biggest lesson that we learn is that for those of us who don't study history, we are doomed to repeat it. There's this key phrase that pops up throughout the book of Judges. And it's one of the, one of the places that we see it is in verse 17, in chapter 17, verse 6. And it says this, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You'll hear that over and over again. In those days there was no king. And one of the things Judges does is it foreshadows the eventual arrival of kings in the Israelite culture, Right? After we get to the book of Judges, we look at some books, some, some small minor books like Ruth, and then we get to 1st and 2nd Samuel, which is, tells us the story of how the monarchy in, in God's people came to be. 
Right? We have the, the three kings in a unified kingdom, and then the kingdom splits and all those things. But the whole kind of foreshadowing in this book of Judges is there was no king. And the foreshadowing is twofold. Number one, to the actual kings that will show up after them. But number two, to the real king who is to come. Judges is a picture of what happens when God's people operate as if they have no king. And a lot of times in the world that we live in, even us as followers of God, we operate as if we have no king. We operate as if we have a savior, maybe even a lord, but not a king. And one of the things that we do is we allow the culture to permeate in small ways. The Lord calls us to a life that is holy and set apart, but we compromise. We say, well, I know God wants me to do all of this, but like, I mean, a little bit of fun, right? Can't take away all the joy. And so we buy the lie that living fully and pressing fully into what God wants us to do with our lives is somehow robbing us of joy because we live in the culture and instead of tuning it out and listening to God above it, we let it in in some small ways. Some of us more than others. We let the world tell us, well, yes, this Christian thing is great. Go to church, do your thing. But when you come here, I mean, you can take that hat off for a second. And so we take it off for a second. And then a minute, and then an hour, and then a day, and then a year. Each one of us, if we think hard enough, and this isn't meant to make you feel guilty, but just to think about your own lives, we think of all the little ways throughout our weeks that we just subtly compromise when it comes to the gospel. Right? Conversations about Christ that we know that the Lord is prompting us to have with people that we just say, yeah, I don't want to do that. Right? Maybe you're at work and you say, yeah, I can't talk about him here because I'm legally not allowed to. You are. You just have to be careful. There are little things and ways in which we allow the culture to permeate the way that we think instead of allowing the Lord, our God, to be the one that guides the way that we think and operate. And so that's where we need to be careful. As we look at the book of Judges, we will see specific ways that Israel compromises over and over again. And the book is a warning to us as God's people. Say, look, when you do that, here's the worst case scenario of what can and probably will happen. It only starts small. The next thing you know, is you just toss it aside and you don't look any different than the world around you does. So my hope and prayer over the next few weeks is as we sit in this and look at the way these, these territories were conquered and God's people started to compromise, that we start to learn and that we start to take heed as ourselves, not just as individual Christians, but as a church as a whole and as the bride of Christ to say, who are we? Who is God calling us to be? And what are we going to do with this warning that the Lord throws at us? And again, I promise you, you will walk away from this book with the hope of God in your heart. Right? But for now, we're going to wait for that for five weeks. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are the only ultimate righteous judge. Lord, that you raise up people over the years to, to deal with the, the people that you have called to be yours 
but that in the end, our only judgment that we will sit under is yours, and it is carried by the weight of the cross. Thank you that as we engage with the book of Judges, we can live under the mercy of Christ, knowing that our sins are forgiven. But Lord, we ask that still you convict us through your Holy Spirit, that you point out to us the ways in which we, over the years, subtly compromise and allow the world to just come in and we buy the lies. Lord, we pray that your Spirit would just permeate us with truth instead. That as we read and engage with your word, that more and more the truth of it would shine through, and that we would toss aside the lies of this world as your Spirit leads us and guides us and empowers us. Be with us this week as we continue to read through Scripture, as we hear of the story of, of your Genesis, of your creation, and of your people. We love you and praise you. And all people said, <laughs>